Would you have freedom from wage slavery? Then join in the grand industrial band. Those early indigenous longshoremen stood up for each other. In 1906, they formed one of the first unions on the Vancouver waterfront. The picketers are all young women. They're all wearing short shorts, and their signs don't make the usual workplace demands or call out the boss. Instead, they say, Blatt's beer is back. June is Indigenous History Month in Canada. This year, the country has been rocked by the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves of indigenous children who attended residential schools over the decades. Today, we bring you a report from the always excellent podcast On the Line, Stories of BC Workers, which takes note of Indigenous History Month with a different aspect of British Columbia's indigenous history, one that's not tragic and not very well known. They examined the contribution of indigenous workers to the port of Vancouver, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, largely through the voices of those who worked the waterfront. And it's a union story, too. In 1906, the Independent Lumber Handlers Union was established as Local 526 of the Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, with most of the 50 or 60 members being indigenous. This is their story. This week we've also got an interesting story that reminds us that labor history is all around us and can pop up in some pretty unusual places. This one started with an odd photograph that sent me down some unexpected paths from a long-forgotten strike to a racist TV show. And on this week's Labor History in Two... The year was 1944. That was the day local 212 UAW workers at Briggs returned to work. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Hand in hand, that's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand, one industrial union I came across an odd photograph recently that sent me down some interesting and unexpected paths from a long-forgotten strike to a racist TV show. The black-and-white photo at first glance doesn't seem unusual, showing a traditional-looking picket line with picketers and signs. But the picketers are all young women. They're all wearing short shorts, and their signs don't make the usual workplace demands or call out the boss. Instead, they say, Blatt's beer is back. It turns out that these women were models, and they weren't heralding the end of Prohibition, but were hired to march in front of the Blatt's Brewing Company on July 29, 1953, to celebrate the return of that brand of beer after the end of a 76-day strike by some 7,100 Milwaukee brewery workers. 
After the mock picket line in front of Blatt's Brewing, the models joined a street celebration where a band played for dancers. The vote accepting the new contract was not unanimous, and the settlement did not produce a 35-hour workweek for all employees of the six breweries involved, which had been a major bargaining issue. The breweries, in addition to Blatt's, were Gettleman, Independent Milwaukee, Miller, Pabst, and Schlitz. The settlement did provide for a pension plan, a $0.20-an-hour wage increase, and health and life insurance benefits, among other gains. According to newspaper accounts, resolution of the dispute came rapidly after Blatt's, in separate negotiations, made an agreement with the union a few days earlier, and Blatt's president, Frank Verbest, informed the five other breweries that if they didn't accept the same settlement, Blatt's would, quote-unquote, go it alone. The Blatt's Brewing Company produced Blatt's beer from 1851 until 1959, when the label was sold to Pabst Brewing Company. Blatt's beer is currently produced by the Miller Brewing Company of Milwaukee under contract for Pabst. Another labor history side note, is that in the 1980s, Blatt's was marketed directly against Pabst Blue Ribbon in the working-class market, as seen in a 1981 blind taste test commercial featuring a seal worker. While searching for Blatt's commercials for this piece, I discovered that Blatt's sponsored the Amos and Andy show, which CBS launched in July 1951. Out of the library of American folklore, those treasured stories such as Huck Finn, Paul Bunyan, and Rip Van Winkle, which have brought us laughter and joy for generations, come the warm, lovable tales of Amos and Andy, created by Freeman Gosden and Charles Correll, presented by the Blatt's Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a division of Shenley Industries. On behalf of Blatt's dealers everywhere, now enjoy Blatt's, Milwaukee's finest beer. I'm from Milwaukee, and I ought to know. It's flat, 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 wherever you go. Flat is the name you will always hear. Flat is Milwaukee's finest beer. Now, the Amos and Andy Show. That same week, the NAACP published a long list of charges against the show, including that it tends to strengthen the conclusion among uninformed and prejudiced people that Negroes are inferior, lazy, dumb, and dishonest. Every character in this one and only TV show with an all-Negro cast is either a clown or a crook. Negro doctors are shown as quacks and thieves. Negro lawyers are shown as slippery cowards, ignorant of their profession and without ethics. Negro women are shown as cackling, screaming shrews and big-mouthed close-ups using street slang just short of vulgarity, and all Negroes are shown as dodging work of any kind. The NAACP formally denounced the show at its July 1951 convention and filed suit against CBS, trying to get an injunction to stop the show from airing. The case was well-publicized nationally, 
with questions of portrayals of blacks and appropriate and desirable roles for black actors bandied about throughout the year. Although Amos and Andy did well in the ratings in 1951, it began to slide in 52, and sponsor Blatt's Beer, wilting under the pressure of the protest, withdrew its sponsorship in 1953, and CBS canceled the show. You can see the photo of the picketing models on our website at laborhistorytoday.podbeam.com, along with a link to the Milwaukee Public Library Digital Collections Remember When Collection. Remember When was a popular newspaper feature of the Milwaukee Journal from 1963 through 1994, prepared by Milwaukee Public Library staff to highlight the city's past as preserved in the library's historic photo collection. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Just open a bottle of draft brewed Glatz. Glatz is the beer brewed for people who like draft beer, naturally pasteurized. Yes, Glatz always tastes like it's straight from the tap. Here at local prices. Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast that aims to shine light on British Columbia's rich labor heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. June is Indigenous History Month in Canada, and this year the country has been rocked by the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves of Indigenous children who attended residential schools over the decades. This edition of On the Line takes note of Indigenous History Month with a different aspect of BC's Indigenous history, one that is not tragic and not very well known. We examine the contribution of Indigenous workers to operations of the Port of Vancouver, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. We will hear from some of those who worked on the waterfront. And it's a union story too. If you want nothing before you are dead, shake hands with your boss and look wise. There is power, there is power in a band of working men. When they stand, when they stand hand in hand, hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. I think it's safe to say that not many British Columbians are aware that until the last years of the 19th century, when they began to be forced out by growing numbers of incoming white settlers, a large part of BC's early workforce was Indigenous. They were miners, loggers, sawmill workers, agricultural laborers, cannery workers, and of course, commercial salmon fishermen. Yet their role in building BC's early economy has been written out of the history books. Indigenous workers also excelled on the waterfront, the back-breaking physical work of loading and unloading ships. In the days before machines and automation, members of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations became particularly adept at loading lumber, a job that required both skill and muscle power. 
In the words of Ed Long, who began longshoring early in the 20th century, they were the greatest men that ever worked the lumber. Waterfront jobs often stayed within Indigenous families, passed on from father to son. Red Baker was among a group of retired Indigenous longshore workers who were interviewed by Jolene Perron in 2017 for the Docker podcast. His father, Chief Simon Baker, went right back to the days of sale. Uh, he used to tell me the uh, first ships he loaded was three mass sailing ships. And he says he used to pass the lumber one piece at a time mm-hmm. wow. down into the hatch. And they fill it up from the sailing ship, go off to England, Europe. And pretty kind of a, you think about it, right? I never knew the, uh, the sailing ships took lumber like that. Yeah. And then if there was any lumber left over, he would take it and he would walk from the railway north end, because we lived underneath the bridge, Linescape Bridge here, and he would save the lumber up. And he finally had enough lumber and he built another new home up on Marine Drive. We were the first family in Capilano to move away from underneath the bridge. The father of Sam George was another pioneer dock worker. My dad was logging somewhere here on North Van, and um, he was—he had the name of Flossie. Everybody on the waterfront knew him as Flossie. But um, they needed a winch driver, and my dad was up on the around here somewhere logging. And he knew how to drive his steam winch. What did they call bow winch around here when they did that in the logging camp? And they went and got him, and that's how he ended up long, uh, longshoreman. And I guess uh, the money in them days attracted, like myself and everybody else, it was the money that attracted me. And, um, but seeing things change, lots of changes today, right from, I hit the tail end of everything, and I remember my dad would come home, and my older brother Ross, I think he worked with you guys. They started probably started around the same time, and um, and they would come home and they would be really tired. I know that <laughs> almost like seven, eight o'clock they'd go to bed. <laughs> but you know it was a lot of bulwark, you know. And I was lucky; I hit the end of it all. I mean, I did it. Those early Indigenous longshoremen stood up for each other. In 1906, they formed one of the first unions on the Vancouver waterfront. Not only that, their Lumber Handlers Union was one of the first unions in BC to join the newly formed Industrial Workers of the World. The IWW, or Wobblies as they were often called, were the most militant, radical union organization North America had ever seen. Their goal was to overthrow capitalism and replace it with egalitarian socialism, where workers would no longer be wage slaves. Their songs raised the spirits of many a worker over the years. Come all ye workers from every land, come join in the grand industrial band. Then we our share of this earth shall demand, come on do your share like a man. For there's power, there is power in a band of working men When they stand, hand in hand That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land One industrial union grand One industrial union 
The Independent Lumber Handlers Union was IWW Local 526. Most of its 50 or 60 members were Indigenous. Union meetings took place at their community hall in North Vancouver. While there is no record showing why the lumber handlers joined the IWW, it is probably safe to assume that they were drawn to its policy of racial equality. Most unions in those days closed the door to non-white workers, believing that the lower wages they usually received undercut their own wages. But the IWW was open to all workers, regardless of race. Class was the enemy, the Wobblies proclaimed, not race. The union quickly became known on the docks as the Bows and Arrows. The name was not pejorative. It was recognition of the distinct status that Indigenous longshoremen held among their fellow workers. They embraced the name too. IWW Local 526 disappeared from the waterfront a year or two later, after losing a strike. But a few years later, there was a new organization of lumber handlers, also dominated by Indigenous members. They established themselves as a local within the International Longshoremen's Association. Longtime dock worker William Nahani and his son Edward were president and vice president. It was also known as the Bows and Arrows. However, in 1923, a disastrous strike wiped out unionization on the waterfront. Most strikers were blacklisted, including indigenous workers. Yet a number eventually found themselves back on the job, and the bows and arrows appeared once again as the International Lumber Handlers Association. The union maintained a three-story building on Cordova Street in East Vancouver, with a store on the ground floor, a bar and recreation area on the second floor, and the union hall on the third floor. During this time, the bows and arrows pioneered the use of waterfront gangs. They were fondly thought of by those who came after them. John Cordesero spent 44 years on the waterfront, including time as president of the ILWU's Vancouver local. When we had the, the bow and arrow gangs, we're talking about the main subject here, the gangs, so the 35 regular gangs we had on the waterfront, um, we'll start at the top and you can add to it. The first one would be like the hereditary chief of the Squamish nation was Chief Moses Joseph, right? Mm -hmm. Were we all in agreement on that? Mm -hmm. And he was, he had the gang. He had a gang. And he was number one. And they even go down, Sai had his gang. Red, Kenny's dad had their gang, size gang, and he had there was a and he had uh, Alfred Jacobs as a winch driver. And, uh, he had Norm Walters' dad as a as another winch driver. There's two winch drivers in the gangs, mm -hmm. and when I first started, thirteen men gangs. Now there's nobody. <laughs> but the depression, mergers, and the bitter six-month waterfront strike in 1935 brought an end to the wonderful bows and arrows. In an interview in 2013, Delbert Guerin, retired longshoreman, fisherman, and a former chief of the Musqueam, looked back to those times. And uh, the bow and arrows uh, really worked the North Shore. And uh, in the early days, uh, there were uh, longshoremen from, from the Burrard Reserve at Tlaut, as they call themselves today, on a Dollarton Highway. Matter of fact, Dan George longshored for a while. And his younger brother, John, 
his older brother Henry. I don't know exactly how many of them were from there. It was about ten of them, I think. Uh, I can't think of all their names. I was just a kid when they before they, but they did quit by the time I started. Still, the waterfront continued to employ large numbers of indigenous workers well into the 1950s. John Cordesero. I'd work with the First Nations people. They had, all of them were great to work with. They all had gangs. and They were always a happy bunch. You didn't get a cranky bunch. And they uh, went through the... I, did, I just touched the surface of Halmeja. Of the three or five gangs, there must have been close to a third of them were all Squamish. Well, they weren't only Squamish. You take George Madden. George, uh, yeah, that was his name, George Madden. He was in Jerome's gang right from the start. Yeah. He was a Blackfoot from where, Alberta or something like that. <laughs> and there was, uh, there was all kinds of people. We, we even brought the, uh, well, a union encompassing these four fellows here, uh, three fellows here. There's a, we brought the uh, First Nations people down from, uh, from uh, up north from Prince Rupert. Sam George. Solidarity, that's one thing I noticed when I started Dunham Hall. Everybody, well, probably still today, but the thing that struck me was how everybody stuck together. You know, if there was a safety issue, <laughs> that whole dock shut down. Like the word just spread, you know, like the mocks and telegraph. Okay, we're going to walk off. Okay, we're going to stop work. And everybody just did it. You know, maybe it's still the same today. I couldn't see. But, um, and, um, and it was the same with, um, like, the ship. If we had a beef, like the gear or something, it was unsafe. Okay, it's going to shut it down. And that was it. The ship just stopped. And, and um, they, um, the lift truck drivers quit serving, and the slingmen quit hooking up the loads, and the winch drivers quit quit uh, running the winches. But you know that was solidarity. We all we all had, we were all on the same page. Seemed like it. Yeah. And I know when I left here, I was bitching a lot. But you know, I'm one of the best things. The only thing I ever hung on to was longshore. All those wives and cars and. <laughs> Everything changed, yeah. but longshoring yeah. was consistent. Yeah. I stuck with you. it because, because of that. Solidarity, yeah. the money, and strong union. And once more, John Cordesero. They were instrumental of me uh, going into uh, the longshore industry, was, and I owe it to the, the elders of the Squamish Band. A lot of them were the movers and shakers of why you have, enjoy a, uh, a nice home like this, and yeah. they all started, they were the militant bunch. Tommy Finley, Cliff Paul, a lot of the forget, forgotten people, they were all, they all did right. And we looked after the people, you know, like mm -hmm. the, some things I couldn't stop, like Ralph Atkinson when they deregistered him. We had, I, I did everything and I couldn't get keep his job. He, he was, uh, he got himself in trouble. But he still got a pension. Harry Newman's on. Mm -hmm. We got him a pension anyway. Dan Cole got him. Oh, we got the convinced the trustees. And, yeah, but the majority of them were fine. They were good longshoremen, and they all could work on a boom. Uh -huh. They could walk logs. So mm -hmm. That was a key to it there. And uh, 
but, but they were great and, and instrumental in my being working on the waterfront with them. They taught me everything I knew. Solidarity on the docks extended beyond the workday. There were sports teams and social events. Ken Baker weighed in on those good old days. We had a hockey team, a Longshoreman's hockey team. We had four teams. And we used to play every Sunday of Coquitlam. Mm -hmm. And that came just as big as stupid Canucks. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have people coming out to watch us. My brother Peter, he was a good hockey player, defenseman. Yeah. He taught me a lot. But we had that. We had picnics. We had picnics at uh, Second Beach. We had at Bone Island. I remember Bone Island. Yeah. The picnics, we won the tug of war, all native tug of war. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Howie Smith come up and he says, uh, Hey, KB, do you want to be the captain? Okay. He said, We'll get a hold of tug of war team. So I got all the biggest guys and toughest guys in the waterfront that worked in the waterfront and we beat everybody. There was one tough outfit was the Western Stevedore and they were all big, mm -hmm. great big longshoremen and uh, we beat them all. <laughs> I never forget that. In another colorful look back, Ken Baker points out that he did a lot more than just physical labor. He also touches on the dangers of the job and how he got into longshoring in the first place. Anyways, I was in a Teddy Band gang, native Squamish. Then I moved to the board, dispatching every day. <coughs> From there, I went driving winch, lift truck, bulldozer, all the machinery you can get a hold of in the water for a night. Did that. I ended up pushing buttons when I retired. Computer, shiploaders, and all that high-tech equipment. I only got a grade eight education, so couldn't go too far. And uh, my dad was down there. My uncles were down there. My uncle got killed on the waterfront. He fell off a gangplank. And he was paralyzed for the rest of his life. What's your uncle's name? Bobby Baker. Bobby Baker. He died in his late 80s, but he was in the hospital all his life because of that falling off a gangplank and hitting the fender log, and paralyzed his back and all that. And uh, Uncle Joe had a gang, Uncle Joe Baker, that was another native native uh, gang, and that's about all I can say for now. But my dad got me in the waterfront. I'll never forget that day. It was a cold autumn day like today. He's working down CPR on <coughs> lead lead or ore, copper ore or something like that was thrown in these steel skiffs and uh, I said but this is longshore and I'm getting the hell out of here <laughs> they give me a shovel and you fill these skips up 
take them down below and put them on the side cars outside the railway cars. But I seen my check the next week. I said, I think I'll go back. <laughs> and I got a good pension, I guess you could say. And I'll be 80 in March, so I did a lot better than a lot of my fellow workers. There is a plaque commemorating Indigenous dock workers and the bows and arrows outside the Vancouver Convention Centre. It contains a photo of a gang of Indigenous labourers on the waterfront of Moodyville in 1889. Jolene Perron reads it out. Uh, Native men worked as longshoremen on Broad Inlet since before Vancouver was incorporated. In many cases, several generations of men from the same family worked on the docks beginning as young as 13 or 14 years old. Members of several of the families that lived in Stanley Park earned money through longshoring, including William Nahaney, pictured in front holding a bag in this 1889 photo. And that's a photo that's on the waterfront as well. Numerous indigenous leaders worked as longshoremen, including Andy Paul, Chief Dan George, Chief Simon Baker, and Joe Capilano, who used money earned on the waterfront to finance a trip to London to lobby the king for the rights of First Nations in 1906. In the late 19th to 20th century, specialization on the waterfront roughly followed radical lines and the work gangs comprised primarily of indigenous men became known for their skill and efficiency in handling lumber. They were also the first to organize a longshoremen's union in 1906, which was Local 526 of the Militant Industrial Workers of the World, informally known as the Bows and Arrows. Although 526 lasted less than a year, the Bows and Arrows unions followed until all longshoremen became part of the ILWU after the World War II. The plaque is well worth viewing along with many others along the convention center's outside walkway that also depict little-known chapters of B.C. labour history. The story of Indigenous waterfront workers and the bows and arrows is one of the best. We hope we have done it justice. Thanks to members of the podcast collective, Bailey Garden, who put it all together, and Patricia Weir, who singled out the wonderful personal reminiscences of the Indigenous longshore workers, now retired, who spent so many years on the docks. And thanks to the ILWU Canada podcast, The Docker, for allowing us to feature clips from episode 33 of their show. The interviews were conducted by Jolene Perron. The clip from Delbert Guerin is part of the Reclaiming the New Westminster Waterfront collection at the New Westminster Museum and Archives and Simon Fraser University. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on The Line. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1944. That was the day local 212 UAW workers at Briggs returned to work. Briggs was directly involved in war production. 3,000 workers on two shifts made ball turrets for heavy bombers. Workers on both shifts walked off the job when management at the outer drive plant carried out a series of transfers and layoffs while expecting the same level of production. It had been the second walkout in a week. Management set a precedent of refusing to settle grievances of any kind. They routinely snubbed the union, insisting that they take any and all grievances to the War Labor Board. Local 212 President Jess Ferraza noted that it would take anywhere from 12 to 18 months to get a grievance processed. Workers were fed up with waiting. He added, quote, It was like a fireman with a water bucket running around trying to put fires out. Management never cooperated. If the grievance were a justifiable one, they would not settle it. They would tell you to get the workers back to work. The strike came on the heels of a contentious state CIO convention earlier in the month. There, delegates debated the merits of the no-strike pledge. Local 212 delegates were among a full third of the total delegates who made known their opposition to the pledge. Ferraza argued that, quote, the no-strike pledge has tied labor's hands, and as long as our hands are tied, the corporations will continue their attacks on labor. Briggs workers agreed to return to their jobs on the promise of direct settlement of grievances. They also geared up for the national CIO convention intent on overturning the wartime no-strike pledge. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. There is power, there is power in the band of working men. When they stand, when they stand, hand in hand, hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review that really helps folks to find the show. The story on indigenous longshoremen and the IWW came to us from our friends at On the Line, Stories of BC Workers. It's a consistently terrific podcast, and you can find it on your favorite podcast platform. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music is There is Power in a Union, written by Joe Hill and performed by Joe Glazer and Bill Friedland, released on the 1954 LP, Songs of the Wobblies. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history. And see you next time. Your share of this earth shall demand. Come on, do your share like a man. For there's power, there is power in the band of working men. When they stand, when they stand.